Welcome to Nomadicate, a podcast all about exploring how different cultures, things, ideas, and even people shape and define our lives and our world. You're listening to your host, Katie DeVille, and today we're going to be talking about aviation and space exploration. In this episode, we're going to investigate the global prehistory and more recent history of aviation, talk about UFOs, space agencies, and then take a look at the future of aviation. Thanks for dropping into Nomadicate, and thanks for choosing to be a global citizen. If you liked my previous episode, please consider leaving a review. It would be really appreciated. This episode is dedicated to my dad, a skillful pilot who enjoyed flying in his free time. He suddenly passed away on April 3rd of this year due to heart disease, and it's hard to comprehend that he's no longer here. He taught me so much, and I'm extremely grateful that in many ways, my dad gave me wings to fly. So, this episode is for him. And I only flew with my dad a few times growing up, but it was really surreal as a kid seeing him maintain and operate a plane. I'd watch him in awe as he prepped for takeoff and communicated sophisticated jargon to controllers. Then, the engine would start to deafeningly rumble. The propellers churned, and eventually, after alarming speed, we ascended far away from the ground. I would feel the acceleration hit my chest, and I watched the trees, buildings, and cars become so tiny, they seemed like toys. The best memory was when my dad let me steer the plane mid-flight, just gliding through the clouds. Obviously, he was right there to guide me through it, but it was really a special moment. And I'm really proud of my dad. Overall, he made approximately 379 flights which to me is incredibly impressive. But anyway, without any further ado, let's dive into the episode. So, where does aviation even originate from? Well, Leonardo da Vinci is recognized for producing the first written studies about the science and the art of flying. In the 1480s, da Vinci began observing birds, bats, and kites. And according to the Smithsonian Institute, He sketched 500 drawings and produced 35,000 words related to flying machines. Da Vinci built upon the idea of the ornithopter, which is kind of like a giant mechanical bird, which makes sense since his designs were inspired by winged animals. In his designs, the ornithopter has 33-foot flapping wings, generated by a pilot located in the center of the machine. This design is ultimately faulty because, well, that takes a lot of strength, which a single human just doesn't have. But this design is captivating, and it even has served as inspiration for many modern-day real and fictional flying machine models. DARPA, one of the United States Department of Defense's development and research agencies, has been developing the NAV, also known as the Nano Air Vehicle. The NAV will basically be a small-scale ornithopter, shaped like a tiny little hummingbird, that will be able to aid in secret missions like transmitting sound and video, and dropping off listening devices. Besides the ornithopter, da Vinci also had two other notable flight-related inventions that I'm aware of. According to Simple History's YouTube video called Leonardo da Vinci's Flying Machines, 
Da Vinci designed the helical air screw, which was the first early conception of a fully operational helicopter. And I didn't know this, but he was also the first to design the parachute, which is very useful indeed. But Da Vinci wasn't the first to dream of human flight, and the Wright brothers, who were the first to build the first powered, controlled, and sustained airplane, get way too much credit. The fascination with flying goes way further back into ancient times, and we can see depictions of flight in early civilizations' mythology, art, and inventions. The representation of aviation can be seen throughout the majority of ancient cultures. The idea of flight was largely connected to the divine, and that's why most deities are depicted as having the ability to ascend into the heavens, with or without wings. For mortals with ambitions of flying, this was seen as a dangerous and lofty pursuit. In the article Ancient Flying Myths and Legends, published by Century of Flight, the author mentions that flying gods can be seen represented in Mesopotamia, Egypt, and Manoa, which were Bronze Age port cities on the coast of the Aegean Sea. Think of Crete and Greece. The gods of these civilizations had gigantic wings. And for the sake of time, we'll focus on Greek, Indian, and Chinese mythology, as well as Egyptian and South American artifacts. One of the first legends of flight can be traced back to Greece, and the fable of Daedalus and Icarus. The story was written by the Roman poet Ovid in 8 CE, and the story illustrates two men's ambitions of flying and its deadly consequences. Actually, the myth is a little more elaborate and way more bizarre than that, but I won't get into the full story. Anyway, in the legend, Daedalus is a brilliant architect and designer who worked for King Minos, the king of Crete. Well, Daedalus got on the king's bad side, and he was banished to the top of a tower. To escape, Daedalus built wings for himself and his son Icarus, using wax from candles and fallen bird feathers. But the execution had to be perfect. If they flew too close to the sun, the wax wings would melt, and if they flew too close to the ocean, the wings would become saturated with water and be too heavy to operate. However, too egotistical and too ecstatic with the feeling of flight, Icarus defied his father, flying higher and higher towards the sun. Ultimately, his wings melted, and he fell to his death into the ocean below. This is just one myth of flight, and it shows that humans have been dreaming of soaring for a really long time. In the East, there are many documents and legends that point to early conceptions and attempts of flight. According to the article Ancient Aviators, Evidence of Prehistoric Flight, published by the website Ancient Wisdom, there are many ancient and sacred Indian texts that reference flying machines as well as other elements of flying, such as high-speed maneuvers. And there's actually a collection of 11th century sacred Hindu books, which has 230 stanzas, which are like verses dedicated to various aspects of flying. In China, Emperor Ching Tang supposedly had a flying machine built in 1766 BC. Fearing that others would learn how to apply flight, he later had it destroyed. There's also the 3rd century account that Chu Tun, a Chinese poet, developed an aircraft that could withstand sandstorms in the Gobi Desert. 
which is in northern China and southern Mongolia. Models of flying machines can be found in Egypt and in South America. In Egypt, an approximately 200 BC bird object was found in a tomb near Saqqara. Made out of sycamore wood, the bird has an upright tail fin, which isn't found in nature. This model suggests deliberate calculation and experimentation in aerodynamics. In South America, two-inch golden artifacts, known as the Quimbaya jets, strongly resemble modern-day airplanes. They were found in Colombia and are thought to have originated from a pre-Inca culture over 1,000 years ago. Realistically, they're probably representations of insects or other animals, and many people seem to think they reflect early attempts of flying or even alien involvement. When analyzing ancient artifacts, it's easy to misinterpret meaning. As humans, we have a tendency for pareidolia, which is the tendency to impose meaning on something totally random. For example, I used to see faces in the design of our wallpaper growing up. There weren't any faces, but my mind found a pattern and it associated it with something I was familiar with. With ancient artifacts, especially in hieroglyphs and the Quimbaya jets, for example, many people are imposing the information they already have onto the picture or the object so it makes sense. For example, they could see a shape in a hieroglyph and then associate it with a modern-day flying machine. This is human nature, and it's subconscious. So, were there UFOs flying around during the pre-Inca period or way before? I would think not. However, with that being said, I'm a pretty open-minded person. Maybe there was alien involvement in the ancient world. What do I know, and who am I to say that there wasn't? But it really doesn't matter what I think. The real juicy question is, did ancient cultures believe in aliens? According to Tim Brinkoff's article, Did Ancient Greek Philosophers Believe in Aliens? Some ancient philosophers did. While Plato and Aristotle refused to believe in the plurality of worlds, some philosophers believed that it was only logical for life to exist elsewhere in the cosmos. One philosopher believed that the moon might be inhabited, and another thought that there must be an infinite number of worlds, since there must be an infinite number of atoms. Epicurus wrote to Herodotus, an ancient historian, and argued that, in quote, there is an unlimited number of cosmoi, and some are similar to this one, and some are dissimilar. And whether we choose to believe in extraterrestrial life or not, which in my opinion is quite probable, UFOs are definitely an actual government concern. With a growing number of potential UFO cases in the U.S., the Pentagon established a UFO task force called the Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group. It's a very long name. As of 2023, more than 650 potential UFO cases are being tracked by the Pentagon. I'm still not convinced it's not Elon Musk and all of his kids with, like, remote controllers operating spacecraft from their backyard. That's just probably what they do on family game nights. Just kidding, just kidding. But really, UFOs are a growing concern for countries. Not so much because they think they're coming from aliens, but because they think they may be dangerous, innovative technology from other countries. The major opponents would be Russia and China. The U.S. isn't the only country worried about unidentified flying objects. According to Kyle Mizukami's article, 
the Japanese military is now officially tracking UFOs, there's been an increase of drone usage and other unconventional flying aircraft in Japan. As a result, Taro Kono, Japan's defense minister, ordered the Japanese military personnel to investigate UFO sightings. And as technology only continues to develop and become more and more accessible to the mainstream, there's going to be a lot more mysterious air traffic, whether it's drones, airplanes, or even rockets. That idea is really cool and really scary at the same time. And we've come such a long way in aviation. And now, not only do we understand aviation, but we have spaceflight. In 1926, the first liquid-fueled rocket was successfully launched by Dr. Robert Goddard, and in 1961, the first manned spaceflight was successfully achieved. The Soviet pilot, Yuri Gagarin, became the first person to go to space. According to NASA, his flight lasted 108 minutes, making an orbit around the Earth. And now we have institutions worldwide dedicated to the development and application of aviation, spacecraft, and other technologies for exploratory purposes. NASA is just one space agency, and there are many agencies that are similar to NASA worldwide. But NASA has obviously had an impressive history and tremendous global significance. So let's talk about them for just one second. NASA's predecessor was called the National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics, which was founded in 1915 in order to develop aircraft technologies during World War I. Later, in 1958, the NACA further developed into NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, which was urged on by President Eisenhower. He was mainly responding to the Soviet Union's intimidating launch of the satellite Sputnik 1, The satellite showed impressive advancements in technology, and it sparked speculation on whether or not the Soviet Union was capable of sending missiles and nuclear weapons that could reach the U.S. As of today, NASA has had 166 manned flights. Three of those operations have ended in fatalities, killing a total of 17 people. And of course, like I mentioned, there are many space organizations that are similar to NASA. According to the article Space Agencies Around the World, published by Rocket Crew, 77 space agencies are currently operating around the globe. Some of the most significant players are, of course, the U.S., the European Union, Russia, and China. In Europe, there is the European Space Agency, also known as the ESA. Currently, the ESA is developing ExoMars, a very exciting rover that will investigate the possibility of past life on Mars. Its goal is to also obtain data for future human missions on the planet. For Russia, there's Roscosmos, the Russian Federal Space Agency, which was established in 1992. The agency played an important role in the development in Russia's satellite navigation system, GLONASS. As for China, there's the CNSA, also known as the China National Space Administration. Despite it being one of the youngest space agencies, being established in 1993, it has notable achievements. According to the article, it's noted as the third country to deploy a person into orbit with their own spacecraft. I'm really excited for the future of aviation, spaceflight, and just space exploration in general. These fields show how creative and innovative humans are, and what we're capable of achieving. We're a curious species, and we always push boundaries without really fully knowing the outcome. This has led humanity to remarkable technological advances and discoveries. 
Once only reserved for the gods, flight is now accessible commercially to really any middle-class person. And commercial space flight is not only on the horizon, it's pretty much here. Private flying cars and spacecraft will be pretty common, especially flying cars. Years and years ago, I must have been maybe eight, my dad received an aviation and technology magazine in the mail one day. I looked through it, and I saw this flying car prototype. At the time, this was mind-blowing, and I thought this was the coolest invention to ever exist, and it seemed like it would take forever to develop. I remember talking to my dad about it and asking him his opinion. And while I don't remember exactly what he said, he pretty much agreed that it would eventually happen, and indeed, it was awesome. Well, now I'm 23 years old, and someone has built a flying vehicle. Not only do I feel old, which I know I'm not, but it makes me sad that time is flying by so fast. But anyway, get ready, because we're about to enter into a new era with private flying cars. And Dejer Mulnar is blazing the path in that field. I had the privilege of meeting him last year in California, and he's just really profound in his creativity and drive. Not only is he a vibrant and kind person, but he's a brilliant inventor and a talented pilot with a long list of achievements. Check out his website at desjermolnar.com, D-E-Z-S-O-M-O-L-N-A-R.com to learn even more about him. For this episode, I'll be mainly referencing his life and projects from the Spencer Lodge's podcast interview, The Future of Personal Aviation with the Inventor of the Flying Car. According to the interview, he's had a long-held interest in aviation. At three years old, Molnar had a neighbor who was an interforce pilot who taught him early on about aircraft, weights, and measures. His mother also worked for American Airlines, and throughout childhood, he would often take flights making trips to visit his father's family in Hungary. Not only did he get an early introduction to aircraft, but he also obtained many technical skills through his father, an electrician. Molnar first attempted to build a hand glider at age 11. At age 12, he became involved in helping fly hot air balloons. Since then, he's gone on to achieve some really mind-blowing accomplishments. Not only did he fly jets in the Air Force, but he was also an important player in the private rocket industry. At 19 years old, he was helping build a manned rocket. You know what I was doing at 19? Which was just like a couple years ago, by the way? Well, I definitely wasn't helping build rockets. He was also a judge on the X Prize, which according to Wikipedia, is a nonprofit organization that designs and hosts public competitions intended to encourage technological development to benefit humanity. I could go on and on about the diverse set of projects that he's worked on. He's also a musician, by the way, who's recorded with Casino Mansion. But for the sake of time, we're going to focus on two of his inventions, the street wing and the gyrocycle. The street wing is a streamlined, solar-supported electric flying car. According to the interview, it's considered a concept car, which, at this stage of development, has the ability to drive down the road. However, he also has another aircraft, which I believe is pronounced as a Tri-Q 200, which is acting as the flying version of the car. According to Molnar's YouTube video, Molnar Straight Wing, the Tri-Q 200 aircraft has over 600 flight hours, 
and it's being used for testing and training. In the interview, Munar states his goal is to get the concept car, the straight wing, flying. The idea is absolutely feasible, and the design is around 95% effectively completed. However, the speed of development relies on funding. So, go fund him. The straight wing is only just one of his most recent projects. But Mulnar has a very established flying vehicle, called the Gyrocycle. The Gyrocycle can be best described as a flying motorbike. According to Laws Blaine's article, Desert Mulnar Interview, Part 4, My Two Current Flying Car Projects, Mulnar first flew his original model, the GT, in 2005. It was successfully licensed, registered, and insured on the road and in the air. More recently, Mulnar has created the G2 Gyrocycle. It has three wheels and has a speed capacity of 200 miles per hour, and it's race-focused. As of 2016, when the article was written, the G2 has the ability to drive on the road and it's nearly ready to fly. Again, check out Mulnar's website at desermulnar.com. D-E-Z-S-O-M-O-L-N-A-R.com to see his latest projects and even learn more about this really cool guy. On a larger scale, flying cars are starting to become commercialized. According to Brie Fowler's article, Great Scott, this flying car could roll out sooner than you think, the air mobility company Aska has also built a flying car prototype. They started taking pre-orders in 2019, and they plan to start shipping them out in 2026. But don't get too excited. These things are crazy expensive, and the retail price on the A5, which is the prototype, is $789,000, and the prototype hasn't even obtained approval and certification from the Federal Aviation Administration. It also needs to be street legal. Fitting within a regular parking spot, the A5 is about the size of a SUV, and it seats four people. The vehicle is electric-powered, but when it's ready for takeoff, it uses premium gasoline. This aspect is disappointing compared to Mulnar's fully electric street-wing concept. The A5, in my opinion, is an overkill. It's too chunky, and it's not energy-efficient. Or it's not as energy-efficient as it could be. In his interview with Spencer Lodge, Mulnar talks about how we have to rethink the design of flying vehicles to make them more streamlined and therefore more energy efficient and sustainable. For flying cars, people want a similar seating layout to a regular car with a passenger seat and back seats. The A5 strives to mimic that, but as Mulnar mentions in the interview, this layout is inefficient and not compatible with sustainable energy. While the A5 aircraft will initially need pilots, by 2030, it will most likely be like a Tesla, being fully autonomous. To avoid air collisions, the A5 will communicate with one another. Eventually, the A5 will likely become more accessible too. Similar to Uber, the aircraft will be eventually used in taxi shares. It's estimated that the fare will be as cheap as an Uber Black. We're entering into a really exciting new era of aviation that will bring challenges and opportunities. And I'm really excited to see how inventors like Dejer Mulnar pave a more sustainable path for us all. Well, that concludes our third episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review. Again, you're listening to Nomadicate, and this is Katie DeVille. 
Thank you for joining me today. And follow if you want to take your global citizenship to the next level and learn even more about our beautiful big world and some of the things and people that influence it. This is Katie DeVille signing off. And remember to stay curious.